Welcome to Mom Jeans. I'm Rachel. And I'm Tina. And whether you wear a boyfriend, boot cut, high rise, or low rise, this podcast is going to teach you to love the jeans you're in. So mamas, put your booty in a chair and let's get started. Welcome to Mom Jeans, episode four, Your Weight. This is part one. If your ears are perking up right now because you think, ooh, good, maybe they will give me some new weight loss tips today, then you will be sorely disappointed because it's not happening. We decided to split this topic into two episodes because there's just so much to talk about. So today we are going to discuss the genetic components that make up one's weight and body size, tell you why we think BMI is BS, We're gonna explain metabolism and discuss environmental factors that contribute to weight. Then next episode, Your Weight Part Two, we will talk about the philosophy behind weight, health at every size, respecting your body, finding peace with food, and how we can care for our bodies. So buckle your jeans, mamas, or put on your leggings. This episode is a heavy one. I do wanna emphasize before we get started that this is a different conversation about weight. My fear always in talking about this subject is that people start discussing the whys, like why we gained, and the what's, what's changed about our weight, then quickly go into the hows, the how to lose, the how to change our bodies. I want this conversation to be the whys and the what's, no how. This is who you are. This is what contributes to who you are. So let's just embrace your body and your story. I want you to leave this conversation understanding and respecting your body, not trying to change it. It is what it is. Let's change our culture and our minds, not our bodies. Heck yeah. So right now I'm going to talk about a topic that really grinds my gears, people, and that is BMI. And honestly, I hate it because it's bullshit. Bullshit. But it is also what is driving our healthcare system at the moment and influencing a lot of practitioners on how they give their recommendations on health. So I feel like it's necessary to dive into the details so that you as listeners can really decide what you truly believe. But I have to admit that my opinion is going to be trickled in with the facts. I'm gonna explain what is BMI and why I think it's bullshit. I might get really upset talking about this, but I'm gonna try my best. Okay, so BMI was originally created in the 1830s. So long ago. So basically forever ago by this guy, and I don't speak French, so work with me here, Lambert Alofe Jacques Quetelet. I don't know how to say it. We'll call him Lammy. Lammy, okay. <laughs> so basically, Lammy, who was a Belgium astronomer, mathematician, statistician. So to me, I mean, extreme sarcasm here. What a great marker of our health, right? This is the guy that really should be telling us all how to determine our health care. But I mean, he sounds very intelligent. Very. But yes, I am curious to see what he has to say about my body size. Exactly. But this guy's main purpose when creating this equation was to ultimately allocate funds and resources for population trends. This equation was not intended for individual purposes. 
So this equation really doesn't work for one person and I'm gonna explain why. The equation divides our height by too much weight. So if people are short and weigh a normal amount, they're going to enter in high on the BMI scale. Or if someone is really tall and weighing a normal amount, they're gonna measure too thin on the BMI scale. The BMI doesn't take into account that us as humans are naturally designed to have different heights in different weights. So there was no better measure of our health at that time in the 1830s, yet for some reason now we're still using this measure. So I wanted to dig a little bit deeper when I was looking into this because as a dietitian, I know what, a BM, what BMI is. I know how to calculate it. That's stuff that we learned in school. But as a dietitian that actually practices with real humans, I don't use it to determine someone's health. So I had to do a little bit of research. And I went to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services website for BMI. And their definition is that it's a measure of body fat based off of height and weight that applies to adult men and women. So that's an interesting definition. But I noticed that the definition says adult men and women. And yet when I'm in the pediatrician office with my children, the BMI scale is brought out and growth charts are brought out. So how does this apply to children? Well, something important to note is that BMI should never be used on children and adolescents. They should be using their appropriate growth charts. So it really infuriates me when I hear people saying that their pediatrician is telling them that their child's BMI is creeping into the overweight category. And that's incorrect because BMI should not be used on a growing child. We want to use their growth, growth curve. Is that because it calculates height and children are still growing? It's because it takes into account that children are born at different sizes and they grow at different rates and that while they're growing, they may, their body may prep them to, for that growth spurt. So they hold on to a little bit more weight in preparation for that. Um, or, you know, before they're entering into puberty, they're holding on to a little bit more body fat. So it really isn't smart to use BMI. It's not even really, it's not recommended to use BMI because we're not taking into account those factors. Um, so Got a it. children's growth curve really allows for variety, individuality, and the fact that their body is still developing. Anyways, I feel like a really important question is, is BMI an accurate measure of health? So when looking at the National Health Institute's website, I found that there were a lot of triggering words. Some of those words being control your weight, useful measure of overweight and obesity, good gauge of your risk for diseases. I mean, seriously, this yeah, goes against awful. ultimately what I believe. Because how can you tell if someone is healthy just by looking at them? Can you tell if someone's having heart palpitations? Can you tell if someone has low vitamin D? If they eat a balance of fruits and veggies? If they're allergic to specific foods? How much sleep they get in a day? No. So how does measuring someone's height and weight tell them that they are healthy or not healthy? What about muscle mass? There are so many issues wrong with this measure going on about why it's pretty terrible. In 1985, the BMI ranges were created 
And then all of a sudden, the National Institute of Health decided in 1998 to change them because they found studies they believed that were linking weight to diseases. So one day, someone who was in a normal weight range, the next day they woke up and they weren't in a healthy range anymore. They were considered to be at a higher range just overnight. Not even that their behaviors had changed or anything like that. They just woke up and their weight range had changed. So in 1998, basically the government sat down and decided to completely reevaluate all of these measures in order to try to please the healthcare system. Exactly. Yeah, so people basically all of a sudden were one day deemed to be in a quote-unquote healthy weight, the next day deemed to be in a quote-unquote unhealthy weight. Correct. All of these BMI calculators are basically arbitrary. They're all deemed by other people. They're all deemed by calculations that were made up in the 1830s by astronomers. None of this technically has a ton of solid base to it. Correct. We are not finding that weight is the cause for diseases. And I know that there's probably people that are going to be arguing that, but we will chat about that in uh, part two of this episode. And I will discuss research around that. I remember being at a nutrition conference. One of the presenters was a guy that actually sat on the board that changed the BMI range in 1998. And he had said that they really just rounded some numbers and chose a number that a number system that sounded good versus really having any sort of credibility behind it. It was really fascinating and infuriating. It really pissed me off that this guy is ultimately saying, oh, you know, it's just numbers. But really deep down, we all know that these numbers are, for some individuals, their value system. And so we're trying to help change that. Okay, so if we cannot trust BMI, then what are some of the factors that contribute to our weight? Yeah, so coming back to the heritability scale, it's a medium, meaning that it is half genetics, half environment. And I want to dig a bit deeper into the genetics part of our weight. So your weight is called epigenetic, which basically means it is an expression of your DNA. Your DNA does not ever change, but your genes mutate and alter according to the environment. So the part of our weight that is, is genetic-based is based off of something called our set point range. And I really want to dive a bit deeper into that so everyone really understands what set point range means. It doesn't mean that you have a specific range for the rest of your life that you're going to maintain in because the reality is, is that we have life phases that influence our weight. I'm not supposed to weigh the same that I did in high school or will have the same body that I did pre-baby or post-baby or the same body that I'm going to be in at 60 years old. It just really isn't realistic to think that I'm going to stay the same. The reason being is that there are many factors that make up our weight, some genetics, some environment, and here are a few that make up our genetics. Hormones, which is why over time our weight is going to change because our hormones change. Another one is muscle mass. As we get older, it is more difficult to maintain muscle mass due to hormones and other factors, so our body's gonna change. I don't know very many of you that see like 70 or 80 year olds that are jacked on muscles, but 
for the most part, we don't. Because it's hard to maintain that muscle mass. And other factors are going to be height, weight, and age that are genetic. And then for environmental, it's going to be climate, physical activity. So with our set point range, this means that our body does have a certain range at a point in our life that it really likes to maintain within. So if we exit outside of that range, it's really going to try to do everything in its power to get back into our range. It's going to fluctuate our hormones, going to tell us that we feel hungrier or more full, or it's going to wake us up in the middle of the night to eat. It's going to shift our mood and our mindset to preoccupy us with about food. Uh, It's going to tell us that we're tired or feeling physically drained because it wants to be in a different place. Our body is really trying to communicate that it wants to return to a set point range and its only form of communication is sending these signals. So you can shift your weight and force it to be outside of this range. However, you have to do it through behaviors that I don't really agree with and that we'll chat a little bit more about in uh, the next episode. But from a genetic standpoint, there is a happy range that your body wants to be within and that it ultimately will function at its best. That reminds me of an example where I really experienced my body communicating to me that it needed to change its set point range when I was pregnant. My husband jokes that he has trauma memories when he hears the sound of crinkly granola bar wrappers because I would keep them in my nightstand so that in the middle of the night when I woke up starving when I was pregnant I would open them and eat them in the middle of the night and he would wake up to the sound of me unwrapping a granola bar but I remember thinking literally my body is communicating with me right now it needs more food And because it was trying to grow a baby and my weight range needed to be moving upward. So it was increasing my hunger signals. So I think, especially since a lot of mamas are listening to this, I'm sure many of you have really interesting examples of how pregnancy and weight probably made that pretty clear to you how much your body was communicating with you as your weight range changed. Exactly. So for all the mamas out there, let's chat a little bit about pregnancy and weight We're eventually going to have a whole series talking about pregnancy in the body. But for now, I'm just going to say that your body will do everything in its power to nourish your baby. And that might mean without your control that you need to gain X amount of pounds, whatever it is. And we really can't do anything to stop that if that's what our body is requesting. From a genetic standpoint, if you're not providing nourishment to your body during pregnancy because you're trying to control your weight, your body is literally going to suck nutrients from your body and give them to the baby. Now, granted, you may not have enough stores of that nutrient, which is why there are things like birth defects or other related nutrient deficiencies because your body can really only do so much. Then, once you have the baby, your body is going to try to replenish itself through your intake, so hopefully you're eating balanced. But if your main goal during that time is to lose weight, then your body's not going to be able to fully replenish, let alone produce breast milk, if that's what you're trying to do. And it's going to end up suffering. But ultimately, if you just kind of do your thing, eat normal amounts of food, 
per what your body's requesting, your body's going to return to its normal set point range. That brings me back to the BMI because the BMI calculator looked at height and weight. And I think so many mamas, when we talk about how much weight we've gained, we're forgetting the variety of heights we're at. So women who are taller have way more room to grow a baby. And so they might actually not gain as much weight. Women who are shorter have less room. And so our stomachs might sit out differently and we might gain more weight. Girl, I can't even tell you. I'm a short human and my belly just grew straight out. I was lopsided. Exactly. I mean, I I think that's why it's so annoying when doctors only look at weight and women sit around and talk about how much weight they've gained. Because again, no one's taking into consideration height, curves, or other genetic factors. So this is why we don't like the BMI because height and weight are very complex ratios. And then when you're looking at pregnancy, we actually need to include the height even more so. I just think everything shows that weight is very complex. It's not just a number. It's a bigger picture of overall health. And it's just one thing that we look at when we evaluate health. Exactly. There's a few other things that go into what makes up our weight that is not just genetics. And one of the things is environment. There's a lot of research done, and we will link in the show notes, the CDC websites, that talk about how in underprivileged areas and what are called food desert areas, where food is more of a shortage, the environment is going to play a role in individuals' weight and body size. This is simply due to their access to resources, their access to the types of foods that they're able to eat, whether or not they are walking or driving cars. So our environment and where we live absolutely plays a factor, as does our income and our resources. As a therapist who specializes in eating disorders, I also see clients who obviously have a lot of comorbidity. Trauma absolutely affects weight. Women who develop PTSD have a 36% chance of gaining weight compared to women who don't have PTSD. And this is simply due to stress. Our cortisol hormone affects our metabolism, but it also increases depression, which can affect our food and exercise choices. I don't know if you guys have seen the interesting TED Talk on Adverse Childhood Experiences, or ACE, which is developed by a researcher who was supposed to be studying obesity and ended up finding extremely high rates of childhood trauma in his patients. All of a sudden, he started realizing that there was this common denominator in almost all of the patients that he was evaluating. And so he ended up developing 10 measures, which we call the ACE scale, of stress and trauma that occur during childhood that can affect our health, our development of chronic disease, and our toxic stress levels. So sometimes weight is a symptom of trauma due to emotional eating habits, such as wearing weight as an armor for a victim of sexual abuse, but not always. An overabundance of stress hormones physically damages a child's developing brain because they constantly live in fight, flight, or freeze mode. This impacts a variety of issues in how they function in the world, and weight can just be a side effect of that. The solution that this guy came up with, basically, is that it is not about diet and exercise. Healing from PTSD is a big step that requires therapy, trauma work, medication, but the genetic alterations that occurred due to the trauma is something to acknowledge. The head researcher also said, and this is a direct quote, Nutrition is a nice subject, but it has nothing to do with obesity. People don't get fat because they don't know better. 
I absolutely love that. He was hired by the government to 100% study why people are obese. And instead, he came up with the fact that diet and exercise are not the issue here. We're looking at psychological effects. And for me as a therapist, I absolutely love that study because it looks so much at the power of the human brain. I want to throw a disclaimer in here that the word obesity and obese, I don't believe it exists. We are clearly going to be stating it in certain areas because it's direct quotes from certain research, but in no way do Rachel and I back this as a form of diagnosing someone with a certain health issue. It is going to be used, but... It's solely for the purpose of repeating someone verbatim. Yeah, this is not vocabulary that we usually use. While our weight is represented by a single number, weight is the complex combination of a multitude of different metabolic processes, from brain systems that regulate our appetite to enzymes that control how efficiently calories are turned from food into energy that the body needs. Making matters even more confusing, especially for someone like me who doesn't really do science all that well, these factors, while influenced by our genes, are also likely influenced by environmental contributors, such as diet and lifestyle. So I'm going to throw it back to Tina now because we found some interesting studies that talk about three different hormones found by scientists to impact your body and weight due to how your body processes hunger. Tina, could you explain this to us? Yeah. I can. So I'm going to talk about three different hormones, leptin, ghrelin, and neuropeptide Y. So first I'm going to start with leptin. Leptin is a hormone made by our fat cells and acts as our thermostat for our body's energy needs. So each person has their own unique leptin threshold, which basically means that when your leptin levels fall below a certain amount or your threshold, it will send a signal to your brain that it's time to eat. If the leptin levels maintain or surge above that amount, your brain sends signals that, hey, you're full. So researchers are finding that each person has a unique leptin threshold and therefore communication to their brain may be a reason why everyone has a different range of hunger fullness signals to start and stop eating. This makes it really challenging in my private practice when working with clients and trying to uh, describe what hunger feels like or what fullness feels like to individuals that maybe have never actually felt an accurate um, representation of what that is or their calibration to hunger fullness is off. So I thought this was pretty interesting that it's like, hey, we get to really explore your true unique threshold of what hungerfulness feels like because it's unique to your body. And going back to the trauma piece we just discussed, I think that the trauma impact would absolutely affect people's leptin. For sure. That would be a cool research study, but I don't have it. <laughs> if we if we find something, we'll link it in the show notes for you all. <laughs> the next one is ghrelin. This one is known as the hunger hormone, and it's produced by our cells in our GI tract. It plays a key role in your appetite because it signals the brain to eat. So when your stomach is empty, it signals your brain that you need to eat something. 
Its levels increase during dieting, signaling your body to please eat. So this could be many, one of the many reasons why those that diet regain back all their weight and then some. So ghrelin has many responsibilities, and I'm going to list just a few, but it feels like a lot. <laughs> uh, regulating your appetite, maintaining energy homeostasis, playing a role in your pituitary gland function, assisting in insulin release, playing a protective role in cardiovascular health, affects your sleep-wake cycle, your reward-seeking behavior, taste sensation, and carbohydrate metabolism. So because ghrelin affects our appetite, it can impact weight loss, especially when someone is dieting. So people who struggle with anorexia nervosa may also have high ghrelin levels, which occurs as part of the body's natural response to starvation. The last hormone is neuropeptide Y, and this one I love and am constantly talking about in session. So this is a uh, chemical produced by your brain that triggers our drive to eat carbohydrates, which is our body's main and preferred source of energy. Evidence is showing that it has a lot of influence on our brain and eating behaviors. So I'm gonna call it NPY just for my tongue's sake. So NPY, main reaction is caused by deprivation. When your body is deprived or starve, NPY is released or triggered at the next eating opportunity. This is when your body is gonna crave high carbohydrates to fuel itself as a reaction to the deprivation. This is a result of NPY being put into action. Another cool thing about NPY is that your body will make more of it when carbohydrates are being used during physical activity or during high stress moments. So this is one of the reasons why carb refuel for exercise is so important and individuals may struggle with emotional eating on carbohydrates when they're really stressed out or emotional. It is our body's natural response to this chemical being elevated. The way to halt this over production of NPY is to make sure that you're eating enough carbohydrates, which can in turn increase our serotonin levels and serotonin will automatically shut off the production of NPY. So what the heck does this all mean? Eat your carbs, please. Please. I love this example because I talk to a lot of my clients who are students about this. After you've been sitting in class all day, you're starving. And a lot of my clients will say, I don't understand why I'm so hungry. I quote unquote, haven't done anything. But really your brain has burned all of the fuel, which usually are carbohydrates in order to think, to study and to get through class. And so when you're done with a full day of class and you walk into the school cafeteria, your apartment, you don't think, "Mm, I want a salad. You're literally craving carbohydrates, and this is all because of NPY. And so having people really understand that carbs refuel and your body naturally is sending out signals to crave these carbohydrates, it just gives so much respect for the body and respect for the hunger signals. Because Tina and I work a lot with people who diet, obviously, and because we are so anti-diet, We really do feel that this whole concept of understanding all these hormones is so helpful so people understand why diets don't work. Because while diets do affect your weight temporarily, chronic dieting really affects your metabolism. And Tina, if you could explain this, I think this is so helpful for people to understand. Yeah, so we're not going to go into the specific diets today because we're literally going to be planning an entire series on busting diet myths. But I am going to say diets don't work. 
So I'm going to use an analogy to help us understand our metabolism. So I'm going to compare a wood-burning stove to our metabolism. So think about it like this. There's a wood-burning stove, and we are trying to keep that fire going so that this stove can heat an entire room. In that stove, you can decide to give it a couple logs, a couple twigs, some paper, leaves, whatever you want for it to burn, and each of those things are gonna burn at different rates. But the most important part is that you consistently fuel that fire to keep it going. And when you do that, the fire remains hot. When the fire is hot, you can blow on it a little bit and the fire will become stronger and continue to add logs, paper, twigs, whatever. In this analogy, the logs, twigs, and paper are all either meals, snacks, quick snacks, and the blowing on the fire is our exercise. However, if you've decided to starve the fire by not giving it any of the types of fuel, logs, twigs, paper, then the fire becomes cold. The coals become cold. And if you try to fuel it later on, hours later, the fire is going to have a harder time starting back up. It will, but it's going to have a harder time. Now, let's say you try to blow on this cold fire or you overblow on the cold fire, aka overexercise without fueling your body. The fire is not going to get hotter. It's going to get colder. So this in a nutshell is basically saying it's really important to fuel our bodies with enough food and consistently. And when we deprive our bodies with food and or engaging in overexercise, our metabolism can't function like it's supposed to function. It can't remain hot. It can't contribute to our body's functions. I use that wood burning stove analogy with my clients as well, because what I try to tell them is if the fire's running pretty cold and you throw on a couple little sticks, like for example, a banana, <laughs> like sure, it's going to spark a little, but it's not going to fill it up enough. So you, if the fire's really cold, you got to throw it a log, sit down, have a meal. If it's just kind of starting to go and you know you're going to leave for a little while, throw in a couple sticks to keep the fire going while you're gone at class all day. So we can really use certain types of foods and certain types of schedules to explain how to teach clients how to eat and how to fuel their body. Exactly. And the coolest thing about our body is that it really is going to compensate to conserve fuel. So whether we want it to or not, our metabolism is going to slow down. Uh, the coolest thing that I learned about our body is that our brain is so gracious that it is the first one to give out energy and the last one to take it back. So this is why our mood is dysregulated when we diet and why it takes so long when, when rehabilitating with food for our mood to regulate again. So imagine dieting for long term. And I know a lot of the time I get the question, is my metabolism permanently damaged? And the answer is no. We just really have to get back to that wood-burning stove refueling our bodies consistently so that it can get back to its homeostasis place. I think psychologically what's fascinating about the wood burning stove analogy is that 
it really is all about honoring our body and honoring the different phases of life it's at. Sometimes we need sticks. Sometimes we need logs. Sometimes we need coffee and alcohol as moms just to survive. I don't know. Is that a stick or a log? Or... That's the newspaper, friends. It... Wine is your newspaper. Yep. It's not food. Don't mistake it for food. It is the paper that basically goes, burns real fast. Burns real fast. There you go. Wine's your newspaper, friends. Um, but I think what's fascinating is really if you could spend every single waking up, every single day waking up and realizing, I got a stove to fuel today. And what do I have planned in front of me today? What am I doing with my kids? What am I doing with my job? What errands am I running? What's my schedule? And then really look at the day and go, okay, what am I putting in my logs? What am I putting in my sticks? Because overall, we have to keep our metabolism steady and we have to keep it healthy. And we have to keep our moods elevated so we can stay patient with our kids, so we can be cognitively not impaired by dieting. And so I really am passionate about helping moms realize that you've got to fuel yourself and you've got to figure out how to fuel yourself and what works for you. A lot of times I tell my friends or even my clients, you get to be your own detective. You get to learn what your body likes, how it operates, how it burns the fuel. But the bottom line is you have to fuel it enough and you have to treat it with enough respect. Well said, Rachel. Well said. My question to you, Rachel, is how can we learn to accept our weight? So our weight is always changing as females and as moms. We just went over a ton of scientific information for you about our genetics. We talked about our environment, our access to resources. The bottom line is so much goes into our weight that body acceptance is absolutely necessary because it's such a complicated situation and we have to have respect for the complications especially as moms, I mean, what other time in our lives does our weight fluctuate the way it does when we're pregnant? Who can attest to the impact of hormones and fertility treatments on your bodies? Raise your hand if feeding yourself with love is so much harder when you have a crying newborn and a tempering toddler. I'm raising my hand. Mm -hmm. Oh, here's a good one. Who's had to leave exercise class early because the baby won't stop crying in childcare? Who's had to leave a yoga class because your baby pooped all over himself? Oh, oh. I've had to do that before, yeah. yes. The bottom line is our weight is only one piece of the puzzle, and our mental health during this phase of child rearing and body changing is the most important factor. Our weight can be indicative of that, which is where self-love and self-care come in, which, and we'll go into more of that in the next episode, but we really need to give ourselves grace and a lot of body acceptance. We may have mama marks like we went over in our last episode, we are changing our pant sizes every year, it seems. We have less time for ourselves, and it's okay. The beauty of life is not in the mirror. It's conquering each day's small victories, whether it be following through with a timeout for your toddler or a workout for yourself. I think if we can focus on self-love each day, such as drinking water, taking a shower, maybe going on a jog, having protein, drinking that latte while it's still hot reading or even crashing and watching reality tv and unplugging whatever that day is calling us that is way more heavier quote unquote of an impact than any number on the scale yes i literally when you're listing out those things to do for ourselves sometimes when i'm driving places i sit in the car as i'm driving in silence i don't listen to anything <laughs> and i didn't realize that until really the other day 
You've got to take care of yourself. And it's very pleasant. It's very pleasant. So, to sum up this episode, our genes have a strong role in the shape and figure of our body. We also have a set point range and homeostasis that our body is going to try to stay within. I always am encouraging others to work on engaging in positive skills that can take care of the one body that we get in our lives versus engaging in a lifetime of dieting and resistance. Let's start to build a better relationship with our bodies so that you and yourself can start getting along. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Enjoy that hot latte and don't worry about the scale today. This episode of Mom Jeans was produced and edited by Rachel Coleman and Tina LaVoy. Thank you to Jerry DePizzo for the music production. You can find episode information and show notes at www.momjeansthepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at momjeansthepodcast and join the Mom Jeans The Podcast Facebook group to find a community of mamas learning to love their bodies and discussing the episode. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mommy. See you.